Hi, this is Dusty Wells. And this is Dave Clark. And you're listening to I I Love Love to Tell Tell the Story. Having worked in the Christian music business for the last 40 years and working alongside the record companies and the artists, (laughs) let me assure you, my friends, we've got some great stories for you. Dusty and I started about the same time in the industry, but I've been working on the other side of the street with songwriters and publishers and copyright administration. But either way, trust me, between the two of us, we know where all the bodies are buried. I hope you enjoy our show. I love love to to tell tell the story. Hey, this is Dusty Wells, and I'm sitting here with my friend and co-laborer and partner with our new podcast, I Love to Tell the Story. And Dave Clark, today was special. It has been a special day, and there are not a whole lot of writers that can tell a story like the guy that you're about to listen to. Joel Lindsay has been doing it for 40 years and he's been at the top of the game, it almost seems like, from the day he got to town. That's exactly right. Uh, he has written some of the most successful songs in all genres of Christian music, pop, contemporary, Southern gospel. And I've always loved Joel's heart. And what I love, Dave, and I know you get this, I love how he loves other writers, and he wants to he talks about mentoring and being there for him, uh, which I think is one of the greatest things that a songwriter can do in this city. What you you need a champion, but then you need to be a champion too. And Joel has has done both of those and done it well. And there are so many songs that a, a lot of our listeners have heard on the radio that Joel wrote. But there's just as many that he didn't write, but he was the publisher or he was the guy that called them to one of his writer retreats, and he watched it being birthed. Yes, I've been I've been so fortunate to share my heart and my story several times at his writer retreat because of the power of a song. And to, I can't wait for the audience to hear the end of something I've always said about the power of a song and where it all begins with a song. And Joel peeled that back today in the most yes. incredible way that I'm telling you what, I will never think of that line again without thinking of what, day, what he said. But I think one of the most amazing things about the interview is that you tend to see a guy's, if you read credits at all, you've been seeing his names as long as you've been watching credits. But you tend to put people like that in places of a perfect world and they got everything going and it's just one glamour shot after another. And and you just can't write those songs that he's been a part of without going through some tough places. Yeah. I loved him. He was very honest and very real because he is in a tough part of his own journey right now. And I cannot wait for the people to hear this. Uh, I just can't wait for him to hear this because I think it spoke to me. And I, I even saw you over there shedding a few little tears over there. But we're big old crybabies anyway. Absolutely. So yeah. I, I think you're going to love this interview, my friend. You know what? At my age... Uh, Tears are one of the things uh, I'm most thankful for. That this too. town has not jaded me to no. the point where I can't be moved I, by a great story I, same or a here, great song. Same here. So, uh, what do you say we go to the interview? Let's do it. Knowing we were coming in today, I've known you, and Dusty has known you for a long, long time, and um, 
the writer in me has been watching you for a really long time. And a lot of people know you in the Southern gospel world and would be amazed to know how many songs you have gotten cut that were not Southern and vice versa is true. Right. Has there ever been a point where you, you've just thought, boy, I, I probably am going to get boxed in at some point or you, you never have worried about that? Well, and, and, and even, even to a greater degree, a lot of people in choral music have no idea that I write songs for artists. You know, not so much anymore, yeah. Yeah. but for but, a long time, I kind of had three set, and I liked yes. that. Yes. Um, I, my biggest worry with that is not that I necessarily get boxed in, except from, like, the publishing side of things, you know. If you're perceived as Southern Gospel by your publishers, and everything I turn in as a work tape is going to have a certain sound to it. I could write the most CCM song, and if a publisher thinks that I'm a Southern writer, they're not going to hear of CCM. So I'll right. have to I'll have to go and get someone else to do a work tape, even to turn into my own publishers, because I need to cast that vision for sure. how I want them to hear it. You know, yeah. um, but that's a great lesson for me as a publisher. I say that to my writers. It's like you've got to convince me. Just because you're signed to my company, that doesn't mean you don't have to impress me. You don't have to cast a vision. You still have to do that, even more so. But that's my only fear is that that that, that sometimes if if someone on the business side of things who could take my songs to a certain place, but as far as like the artists and the fans, I don't really worry about that. What year did you move to town? I think it was '84. And you moved here from Evansville, Indiana, at the time. Okay. And I heard you say years ago that writing saved your life. Yeah. Peel that back a little bit, if you don't mind. Um, well, I I was lost. I was a lost boy, and I don't mean spiritually lost. Yeah. I mean just didn't have a lot of direction. And when I say writing saved my life, there were some abusive situations that I didn't know how to handle. And so writing was my solace. Writing was my escape. Writing was my um, block out the world, block out what's going on, block out what's happening to me, and focus on the writing, you know. So if you moved here in 84, you said, so that's, we're closing in on your 40-year mark, and... My first cut was 88. My first professional cut was 88. So this is my 35th year. Wow. Since, as a, I I consider this my 35th year as a professional songwriter. Um, Who was that first cut? Yeah, that's what I wanted to know. Well, it's funny because... My memory's a little... I had two right around the same time. And I I get really fuzzy on which happened first. I think my first one was Wendy Bagwell and the Sunlighters, a song that John Mays produced called I Learned About Love. Right at the same time, an artist named Karen Wheaton recorded a song of mine called We Are Not of the Night. It's a great song. And... 
and so that those both happened around the same time. So sometimes I get confused which one happened sure. first. But you know how you you pick the winner is which one came first in the mail. The first one that you got to spin <laughs> back in that day. That's that's how you count your first cut. Yeah. So you you had talked at one point uh, something about you. You settled in when you got here, and, and you've talked about being shy. And I, I, you know, it's almost like there's a songwriter's playbook, and we all we all <laughs> read right into it. But we're all a little bit insecure, and and yet the other common thing that a lot of writers say when they have a story is you moved here and you got involved with writers in your church. Yeah. What what do you mind tell what church that was and what that looked like? I went to a little bitty church in South Nashville called the Woodbine Church of God of Prophecy (laughs) and tiny little church. But there were several songwriters in that church. One was a guy named Jeff Yoey, who he and his wife became really good friends of mine. But then David Baroni went to the same church. I love David Baroni. The the original Soldier Soldier of the Light. Light. Soldier of the Light. Yeah. And so, so it was interesting because we became really great friends. David and I never really wrote a ton of stuff together. But he was very supportive because he was always on the road. So, you, yeah, yeah. but but we wrote some together, and and he was always very supportive. And of course, I loved his writing, yeah. and and still do. Great worship writer. I, yeah. st- I think he's one of the most undiscovered. Still, I mean, his, he has some. His oh, I used to love. I love Dave Brony. He was the music beca- director at our church th- when I first moved here. Wow, at Bethel yeah, in sure. Bethel back in the early days of Bethel. Yeah. And there, there were you talk about survivors in this town. You know, we we we've talked about it even before we started today. And that that list of people uh, that were around back in that day that are still around, I'm not convinced it's always because of the more talented ones survived. I think it's because the passion was stronger, and passion will always, in my mind, outweigh the ability. I think some of that is true, but and passion for sure. But also, and this is just this is just me. I didn't have a plan B. Right. It was make this work, or I don't know. I didn't. I, I was very lost direction. I mean, I really was. I I I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life, and the only thing I was passionate about was songwriting. So I didn't move to Nashville like a lot of people and saying, oh, I'm going to give myself five years. I'm going to give myself two years. I moved to Nashville (laughs) to write. And if it took 20 years, it took 20 years. Or if it never happened, I didn't have another plan. And one of the very first things that happened when I moved here, I went to a songwriting seminar held by two very successful at the time Christian songwriters who did everything they could to tell us how impossible it would ever be for us to make any money doing this. And and I get it, you know. And I felt sucker punched for about 20 minutes because I thought, you know, because the, the statement was, unless you're an artist or a producer, you're not going to make it in this town as a songwriter. There's just not any money. And I felt sucker punched because I thought, I just moved here to do this. And I, I don't have the voice of an artist. I don't have the patience of a producer or the technical skills of a producer and, and really don't have the interest, you know. All I want to do is write songs. And so for about 20 minutes, I, I felt the air had been sucked out of the room. And then I just sat there and thought, well, maybe I'll be the first. You know, if they say nobody can make it as a, in a, a living writing Christian music, maybe I'll be the first, you know. Or maybe I'll fold shirts at the Gap and write songs in the daytime. I didn't care. Right. I was in Nashville writing songs. Who cares what else the fallout was? 
And so I really just kind of purposed in my heart that this is what I love. This is the only thing I'm interested in. I'm going to do it. And at the end of that seminar, one of them came up to me and said, I just want to pull you aside and say, you're going to make, you're going to make it in this town. You're going to do fine. And I said, you didn't hear any of my songs. How do you know? And he said, you asked the right questions. I, I was going to ask if that was – because that you and I have both done this enough to know that you can tell by what questions people ask yeah. who's, got, who's got the most long-term plan. Yeah. And that you – most people wouldn't think to even say that, but I, I was going to ask if that was yeah, – yeah, I get it. Yeah. And, and that was really – because I moved to town in 84, I think. Maybe it was 85, but I think it was 84 – I didn't sign my deal with Benson until 93. So I was in town nine years signing single song right, agreements right. here and there and getting some cuts, you know, and things like that. But it didn't come quick and it didn't come easy. But I didn't care. I was yes, in Nashville yeah. writing songs. Right. Did you work at all yourself? Did you just relationships going to writers' nights back then? Did you I, do anything? Well, or did I did. You? I w- again, I was just so shy. Yeah. I would never go to a writer's night and go up and introduce myself to someone. I would hmm. never do that. But I would go to these writers' nights, and I was very fortunate in that when I lived in Indiana, I had gone to church camp with this guy whose brother was the country singer Steve Warner. Oh, my God. So when I moved to town, my first roommate was Steve's brother, David. And because of his connection, I would go to a lot of these writers' nights that I probably wouldn't have even known about. But that was great education for me. And I would go to the the Bluebird and these legendary songwriter showcases and things like that and study. And again, I would never walk up and introduce myself to anybody. I was way too shy for that. But I would would study and I would, you know, it was equal parts, total intimidation. I never will write another song because I'll never be that good. And I have to write because I've just... You can't not write. Challenge, and I can't not write. Right. So I would leave equally discouraged <laughs> and inspired. And and but that too is another mark of of a long term writer. And and you know, and I'm I'm thankful for, for a lot of more talented writers that moved on with their life that left some room Harlan, for a guy like me. Harlan Howard said that he said, "I thank God every day for more talented writers who left and went home." Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, and yeah. part of the problem, just because you know. As you know, I do a lot of mentoring and, and I work with a lot of new writers. Part of the problem with new writers, I think, in my opinion, is the easy access that the Internet has given them to artists. Oh, And I just way. taught at a conference, which you guys were both at, yep. and there were so many more questions about pitching songs and getting to the artist. And I said repeatedly, you haven't earned that yet. Just because you can get to an artist, just because you have access to them, doesn't mean you should and right. doesn't mean you're ready for that step. That's right. Because I think a lot of people just really... But there is there is an abundance of bad information on the Internet, too, or, sure. or one story that goes viral, and that becomes the rule that a lot of young writers yeah. follow versus the... And, and you said something earlier that I also think, and, and I'm always looking for the why is this writer here for the long term this one isn't but but you said i i wasn't a singer i didn't want to be a producer i tend to think those are assets for the career writer 
Oh, you sure. don't hear a lot of people talk about that. Sure, but. sure. But it, but you look at you look at the career artists who have had great careers. They were staff writers first. Yes. Michael W. Yeah. was a staff writer that's first. Stephen Curtis was a staff exactly writer first. Right. You yep. could go yep. on and on and yep. name those writers yep. who, who have had this long and right. illustrious career. They learned their craft first. Yeah, yep. right. you're exactly right. You know, yep. not only did they learn their craft, and and Dusty, I'm going to jump out of the oh, way yeah, here. No, this is good. I love this. Not only did you learn your craft, but but there's another aspect of of what. What I've known about your story and what I've watched, and that is, um, you not learn the craft. You've had a great observation and then implementation of the business side of, yeah. of songwriting, and that that has enabled your mentoring as much as your ability as a writer. Yeah, yeah. And I had a publisher who both of you knew, Cindy Wilt, and when I first signed my publishing deal with Benson in '93. I was in that sort of writer's purgatory of writing with professional writers who were hungry for great songs and, and knew their craft and friends that were not hungry and not professional, and yet they were friends. And so I was very frustrated and very pulled between the two worlds. And after a very frustrating writing session one time, I walked in Cindy's office and I said, I, I, I'm about to pull my hair out. I just spent three hours writing a song that I could have written by myself in half an hour. And, and Cindy's response was, you don't have to co-write with someone to be a mentor and a friend and an encouragement to them. Right. So maybe you're not helping them or yourself by putting them in those situations. And she was the first one that talked to me and aggressively pushed me toward mentoring. Wow. And I was still an infant in my career. I was just learning too, but I think she saw yeah. something in me that, that knew I would need that. And I would, that's, would that's work with that that's later. So good. So good. Do, do you know, speaking of Cindy, Will, do you, Dusty, you remember oh, Cindy? She'd pull me into her office. Like she talked, she's the one that told me all about Joel, believe it or not, down at word. She would wow. tell me all about Joel. I think at that point you, you were, you were not there at word. You were, but she knew you. I mean, she, from the Benson days, but yeah. she'd always talk about Joel as one of the greatest writers. Yeah. Wow, always. So, so let me back up her story just a little bit. And I don't know. You may know this. You may not. But that was a day and time at Benson when they had a lot of great writers, an inordinate amount of writers that didn't really need a publisher. And as you know, there are different needs right. of a publisher at different stages right. in your career. But that was a season of Benson where there really wasn't the need for. I I need to tell you how to make that line better there was there was a need for whose network right cindy will was working at the lambs club in new york yeah. and i called her and i had met her because she used to do production management for greg, greg nelson. nelson yeah right so she knew everybody and she had confidence and she would uh, say it when it needed to be said <laughs> She was not lacking in confidence. <laughs> right. So I called her and I said, so hey, true. we so need you as our publisher here at Benson. Yeah. And she said, I don't know anything about being a pub publisher. I said, and I, I had that conversation with her. I said, no, what we need is what you do. Yeah. Mm. I said, will you at least think about it? And she said, I'm sure there's a bunch. Of, I said, yes, there are a bunch of applicants and they've already interviewed. We need you. And it wasn't my place. I wasn't hiring, but but I was 
in the in the dialogue. And she called back about a week later, and she said, I can't get that out of my mind. What do you think I'd do well? And we, and we had a great conversation. I said, when, will you think about just sending an application? And she ended up coming and applying, and much to the delight of everybody on the third floor over there, she got the job. And I was the first person she signed. I remember. Yeah. And I had the dream scenario because one of the first things Cindy did was hire Julie Eckerman. Right. Oh my and gosh. so I had Cindy and Julie. And here I am, a brand new writer. I mean, I'd, I'd been writing, I'd been getting cuts for five years. So I was, I had some cuts under my belt, but on a professional level, I was a brand new writer. So I had Cindy Wilt, who loved songs passionately. But from a personal, yeah. how does it relate to me personally? So true. So true. And then I had Julie, right. who wasn't a writer, but had this great layperson's yes. viewpoint and could tell you from a craft side of things why a song wasn't working. So for the first five or six years of my career, I had the dream scenario right. of these two amazing women speaking not only into my life, but into my songs and coaching the way I wrote and the way I approach things and making me look at things differently. Right. It was it was incredible. It almost idiot-proofed my my career because I had such <laughs> wisdom yeah. being thrown yeah. at me. Yeah. And 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 I soaked it in. Yeah. I just I would go and sit in their offices and just ask and ask and ask and they they were so great, and they weren't always right. Right. You know? But you could have the discussion with them. You could always have the discussion. And that's, that's I'll take that over somebody being always right all day long. Right, right. And do you remember before you signed, you had a number one song with, with this little part-time publisher <laughs> named Dave Clark, and the song was Come Home... Well, but it actually didn't go number one until after I signed. But but I got publishing before yes, you, you signed. Yes, that's you, that's the important. Yes, you did. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> you wrote that with David Moffat. I did. Yeah. Mm. And and I don't know how far you want to go down this road, and we'll we'll stop whenever you want. But um, I'm I'm convinced that you, you know you talked about. Learning the craft, you're always, you're, and you're still a student, I'm sure. Oh gosh, and yes. you're still a student of the business because it changed since we Constantly. started this interview. Yeah, but you, you also bring another piece to the, the table that, I'm convinced makes writers, more effective at what they do, and that's you found a way to, write out of your own story yes. and make the listener feel like it was their story, and and. I've told you before the favorite song of, of mine that you ever wrote. Do you remember what it was? No, I don't. Life actually. is hard. Oh, uh, life is hard. Yeah. Uh. And and I, if I remember right, there was a story about a little cafe in New York. And if you don't if you don't remember that song and you're listening to this, go find it. It's, well, it's one of my favorite songs. Interestingly I, enough, the Devil Wars were last night, and at some point. Uh, someone was introduced. Uh, he's on one of the boards. His name is Roy Morgan. Oh yeah, yeah. And he's been around for years. Yeah. yeah. At the time, he was a booking agent. Yep. And right. I was traveling on the road playing the piano for Allison Spear, and he was booking Allison. Yep. And we had a dinner, 
And at and I'm just a bystander. They're having their business dinner, and I'm just there because I'm on the road with Allison. And he starts telling a story, and, and I, I don't remember the details of the story, except it was either him or some family member or a close friend who had just lost a baby. And some of the other people at that dinner, not Allison and not not Rory, but other people were offering their platitudes that just felt so empty to me. And it, it every and they were well-meaning, and yet here this this heart-wrenching thing has just happened, and it's just rolling off the tongue so easy. And it took me five years to write that chorus. Wow. Because I wanted to write a song for that scenario. Wow. And there were three other similar scenarios that happened over the course of five years that made me really want to write that song. Wow. And so it took me a, it took me five years to write the chorus, and then a couple of more years to, to actually write the verses. Now what now? What do I remember about the New York Cafe? Okay, is, so so am so, I wrong? No, 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 you're not wrong. But that was after the song had been. The song was number one that year, longer than any other song in CCM. The Dove Awards came, nominations came. I was expecting it to be nominated. Not that that was the end all be all, but the song had struck a nerve and struck a chord with so many people that I just felt like it needed to be recognized. And it wasn't even nominated. And I was devastated. Um, But at the time, I had an apartment in New York. And right after the nominations came out, I was in New York, and I would go to this little diner called Aggie's. And there was this lady named Mary who worked there. And Mary was just... She was in her 80s then, I think, and she had like this bleach blonde hair and wore way too much makeup and was just larger than life. And, and she would come around and she would pour, your, pour her coffee and she was just always telling these jokes. This was when Bill Clinton was president. She hated Bill Clinton. So her jokes were usually Clinton jokes. And it was just, she was just this larger than life character. And she called me Levi because I always wore this Levi hoodie, Levi's hoodie. So she always called me Levi. And, you know, she said, good to see you, Levi. And she'd pour my coffee. And, and back then I had a briefcase. And I would always take my briefcase and I'd have stuff I'm working on, lyrics or whatever. And I would eat my bagel and drink my coffee and sit there for a little while. And, you know, she'd come around and refill and then I'd take off. So one day I finished and I packed up and I'm walking back to my apartment and it was raining a little bit. And, and I hear somebody call. And I, well, I hear something. At first I didn't know what it was. And I turned around, and I realized, it's Mary. And she's running toward me. And so I thought, you know, maybe I didn't pay my check. Maybe I didn't forgot, didn't pay enough or something, you know. So I kind of ran back to where she was, and the closer she got, I realized she was crying. And she had a, a, a piece of paper kind of wadded up in her hand. And she, she, she said, how did you know? And I said, what? And she said, you left this for me. Mm. And I said, what is it? Wow. And she stuck it out, and it was the lyric to Life is Hard, God is Good. And that lyric says, you turn the key and close the door behind you. You drop your bags on the floor. You reach for the light, but there's a darkness inside that you can't take anymore. And she said, I lost my husband to cancer last year. 
and our only son died of AIDS this year. Mm. And she said, I live 11 blocks away from this diner, and every morning I get up and I look in the paper for jokes to tell, and I paint on way too much makeup, and I walk 11 blocks, and I work my shift because I have to. And then she said, I walk 11 blocks home, and I close the door, and my world falls apart. (laughs) And she said, how did you know? And I said, Mary, I had no idea. I just... That's that's the story I remember. I just dropped it by accident. But I said, I can promise you one thing. It was not an accident. And we stood there in the rain and hugged each other. and, And I didn't say a whole lot because I didn't feel like I had to. But we just hugged it out. And she cried on my shoulder and got makeup on my on my hoodie. And it was just one of the sweetest moments. You turn the key and close the door behind you. Drop your bags on the floor. You reach for the light, but there's darkness deep inside. And you can't take it anymore. Sometimes living takes the life out of you And sometimes living is all you can do Life is hard The world is cold We're barely young early enough on in my career that the dynamic of this song not getting nominated for a Dove Award and yet someone in New York who didn't even know what a Dove Award was found hope and comfort in that and to this day if I had my computer I would show you to this day on the desktop of my computer the file where I keep my song ideas is called Songs for Mary Wow. So because I don't ever <coughs> want to forget I'm not writing right. for a Dove Award. Right. I'm not writing for a chart or for an artist even. Right. I'm writing for someone that I don't even know. And I don't even know how this song will find its way to them. But because wow. that has been your perspective, mm. I think God has honored that too. And and the you know, a lot of a lot of people have questions for writers and they'll say well how many songs have you written or uh, do you and and I love what you said it was five years in the making and, and a couple more because we live in a, a day and time now where the mentality is you got to start at 10 and be done with it by one so yeah. you can start the next and I don't want to you know I'm not saying that's wrong for them it's wrong for me yeah but the of all the questions that people ask writers the question the writer wants to be asked is what you just said. How did you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't. It's so interesting about that. I've never heard that story. But Joel knows from me going to your writer's retreat and speaking out, that has always been one of my favorite songs that I've heard of Joel's. And I remember being in San Antonio, Texas, in a really horrible place in my life. I had never heard of Pam Thumb. I mean, I and I studied contemporary Christian music, but she and I love Pam, but she wasn't a big name back right. then. 
But I remember hearing that song. Every time I'd turn on Christian radio back then, I would hear that song. And I remember I, was, I had a little radio a little with me. And I was trying to make some really crazy choices in life. Yeah. I mean, I was making, I mean, really thinking, okay, I just need to go ahead and do this, do this. And that song came on. And because I said, I remember saying, life is just, this is ridiculous. It was a, it was yeah. a clinic oh. in how yeah. to not overwrite the idea. And Well, and the original title was Just oh. Life is Hard. Oh. Wow. And that's man. honestly, that's oh, what I wish man. the title was. And that was a, that was a record company decision, and and I went along with it, and that was fine. Yeah, but the song mm. to me is "Life Is Hard." <laughs> yes, but that song ministered to me, wow. and that when I, I hear that, to hear the story about the lady, oh my gosh, that's Did, where you know the power of the song. The power of a you song. You didn't happen to write "If I Were," no, but I know that song, and I love that song. Yeah, that that was another. She had a couple of yeah. great tunes. Connie Harrington wrote that song. That's right. Yeah, Connie Harrington. Who also wrote I Drive Your Truck. I Drive Your Truck, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. And every time I see Connie, I tell her, you know, If I Were is one of those songs on my list of songs I wish I'd written. Yeah, Yeah. and and writers have those. Yeah. Do you you know Connie Harrington? Do you know that name? I know who she is. I've seen, I mean, I knew. So if you look at all the old For Him records and all the Benson, she's the art director. Yep. So so you, you mentioned... That you played piano for Allison Spear, and and you know my connection that Brian is, sure. w- was best man at my wedding yeah. all those years ago, and actually I was the best man, but he had the title, you know how that goes. <laughs> but he was the first person that talked to me about you. Wow. Huh. And in in a town where it seems like. Dusty, I love your take on this too, but the, it's like the smaller the pie gets, oh. people get more protective oh, of, yeah. of their oh, piece oh, of yeah, it. Oh, yeah, they do. And champions have never been more needed, but, boy, they're getting harder to find. Yeah. That's why I love what you do with your retreats. I love what Sue uh, does. Yes. And it makes me wonder, for you to be that effective as a champion for others, who was yours? I had several. I had several. There, and you will know these names. I really moved to town because there was a girl named Kathy Watson who sang with the Spears. And they sang in Evansville, Indiana, which I, I was where I was living at the time. And I went up and talked to Kathy about songs. And I didn't know she had a little publishing company called Country Sunshine Music. And and she just talked to me about songs and and... She encouraged me to move to Nashville. And her sister Shirley at the time had just written a song called Little One for the Oak Ridge Boys and was working for Aaron Brown Associates. And so I would go, before I moved to town, I would go and just visit. And Shirley was my first co-write. Wow. And and the first two songs I had cut were co-written with Shirley, who unfortunately didn't write much after that. But... But that was sort of my introduction into the business and co-writing. And they were such champions of mine. Wow. That even though I was writing for Kathy's little company, she was pushing me to other publishers and, and introducing me to people and and trying to get my name out there. And it wasn't anything she was doing for any gain of her own. She just recognized something and wanted to promote that. Wow. And 
and boy, you don't forget that. You don't yes. forget that. And so, you know, and I don't know where they are now. I know, you know, life just kind of took us in different directions, but I will forever be indebted to the two of them because they really are the ones that saw something. And first, Ben Spear was publisher on Little One. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It was it was crazy. It was crazy. But there was also one time this was this was when I was sort of making the decision because I moved to town and had to get a job as you do to pay the rent and buy groceries and that kind of thing. So I was working this day job, this power suit kind of job at this insurance brokerage company downtown. And I would change into jeans on my lunch hour and go try to meet publishers and things like that and then come back and change back into my suit. And one day I met with a publisher that I would end up working with a little bit. Um, And I was so excited that he knew who I was, that he had been impressed with me. And I was just so excited that someone knew who I was and what I was doing. And after work that day, I went by Shirley's office and I was so excited to say, so-and-so said this about me. And, and, and Shirley just kind of looked at me kind of funny. She goes, Darla, let me give you some advice. Never believe your own hype. She said, who do you think told him about you? And I remember that. Mm. And I quote her all the time with new writers. Never believe your own hype. If someone's your champion, don't let it go to your head. Right. You know, be grateful. Be grateful that someone yeah. is championing yeah. you yeah. And, and is your hero. You know, and um, that I mean, if 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 anyone I would say were was my champion, it would be those. And then later, of course, Julie and Cindy. Right. Uh, They they believed in me more than I believed in me. Now, when Cindy, we lost Cindy to cancer. What seven eight eight years? Eight years ago, I think eight or nine years ago. Eight or nine years. And and Cindy was. Yeah, uh, she was. She was a hoot. She yeah, just she just had a way of lifting the yeah. room. And when I love, um, I love how y'all said she's so secure because she was. She just walk in and yeah, yes, she did. And, and I'm I'm hoping I got this right. But there was a, another song that on my list. You'd be amazed at my list of things I wish I'd written. How many of them are yours? Wow. And and I, I've got no reason to load your wagon now. I, I, don't, I don't. After all these years, if, if you're not gonna like me, you probably won't anyway. So. But um, if I'm not mistaken, you wrote it with Tony Wood, and it was called um, "As Good as Goodbye Gets." As good as Goodbye Gets. Mm. Yeah. Have you ever heard that, Dusty? Yes, I have. Cindy's, Cindy's dad had passed that. away after I think I think quite an illness. He had passed away, and Cindy had been gone to the funeral and to spend some time with family. Her first day back in the office, I had a co-write scheduled with Tony. But I'd, got, I'd gotten there early because I wanted to spend some time with Cindy. So I'm sitting in Cindy's office, you know, hey, how was the memorial service? And she was, she was telling me all about the fact that she had, she had played the flute, which I didn't even know she played the flute, but she played the flute, and her dad loved to hear her play. So she played the flute for his memorial service. And I think her brother read a poem that he had written. And so Cindy, in talking about her father and this memorial service, is crying, but as she's telling me these things, she's smiling right. mm. while she's crying. Yeah. And I just thought that was the most beautiful thing ever. And my first thought was, what a beautiful goodbye. Yeah. 
And, and I thought that would be the title at first. <laughs> and so Tony was waiting in my office. So I had this conversation with Cindy, and I walked back to my office, and I said, we've got to write a song. And we, I told him just that, that beautiful, beautiful conflict of right. pain and joy and gratitude and sorrow and all these different things colliding and we stumbled onto as good as good by gets. That's, that's just. That's, uh, I've quoted that. Yes. And didn't Gary Chapman cut that? Do I remember? Gary Chat. Uh, quite a few people cut it. Yeah, yeah. Gary Chapman cut it. Jeff and Sherry Easter that's cut right. it. Yeah. Um, a lot of other people have cut it, but I, I think Gary might have been the first. Now, the irony of that is, you know what Tony Wood's family does in Virginia? No. <laughs> they run a mortuary. I I have been friends with Tony for probably 25 years, and I didn't know that. So, <laughs> so it, it, yeah, it's it's an interesting piece. So his brother, you know, still does. And his, from what I understand, it was a family thing. And and how did I not know that? That's well, I, you, you know. Yeah. So so what makes that interesting to me is when when I lost my dad eight years ago, I. I I, I talked to Tony, and, and and you know the kind of friend he is. He's he's there for everybody that's hurting. Sure, and, sure. and I said, you know, the, the, if there's a positive, it's that I've got no regrets. I, I lived. I had the I had the quintessential relationship with my dad. Never a harsh word in our entire life together. And yes, goodbye is tough, but there were no regrets. And Tony's reaction was, "Well, I bet the funeral home hated that." And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Whenever they see somebody come in and they've had they got some regrets, they can charge them a whole lot oh, more." Sure. <laughs> that, oh, that's funny. And that's I, so I funny. I would have never that's, thought about that. That's, that's perspective that, that you that don't get per- unless no, you unless you live it a little. So the so the idea of him being there that morning that that you're going to write a song is yeah, that's, that's brilliant. That's that brilliant. Funny. He'll appreciate that. I outed <laughs> him in front of uh, God and everybody on a podcast too. That's great. That's great. What you thinking, Dusty? Well, I just, I mean, uh, Joel, I remember uh, I was at Word, and we signed this group, Point of Grace. And um, that's where I, I really started hearing Joel, more about Joel, uh, because he had some great songs on those Point of Grace records. And um, I don't know, if, and I hate to say this, I don't know, were you a Word writer then? No, I was, no you no, were a Benson. writer. Yeah, yeah, you were oh, yeah. a Benson writer. I was but a Benson they, for 20 years. That's, I I. I, I I thought that. I think you came to Word actually in my latter years at Word. You were there, yeah. Yeah, and I've been. I was at Benson for twenty years, and I've been at Word for almost ten. Yeah, because you kept relationships good. Yeah, Yeah. you can go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. But I used to love it when they would talk about a Joel Lindsay song um, because I'd I'd studied him out and listened to the music. I knew, you know, I remember the Janet Paschal days and some of those stuff. But I remember uh, the second record was for Point of Grace was. It was going to be a big record. We knew it was going to be a record. And I remember them talking about this song, Gather at the River. And I remember we had a huge budget. I don't know if you remember this, for the video of it. 
I want to say it was filmed in Chattanooga. Or, no, no, no. Well, the video where, was filmed close yeah. to where I'm from in Oklahoma. Okay, I could like, not. Literally I, just a that, few miles okay. from my grandfather's yeah. house is where the video yes. was filmed. Because the girl, some of the girls were from Oklahoma, yeah. if I remember right. They went yeah. to college. and yeah. Okay, so. so we talked about Cindy Wilt. So here's a little backstory on that song that I got to share with the Point of Grace girls, and I'd never told them this story before until they just had their 30th yeah. anniversary and had me come and speak to their fans. But when we wrote Gather at the River, Reg, I wrote it with Reggie Ham, who had been my roommate for years, and we were like brothers, you know. And oh. so, so we, Reggie and I are in my office at Benson. We both had songs independently of each other on hold for that Point of Grace record because everyone was trying to get on that Point of Grace record because the first one was so huge. Oh. And so we sat there for the longest time, and I had this idea for a song called Shall We Gather at the River of Forgiveness, kind of a takeoff on the old hymn, Shall We Gather at the River. And uh, Reggie had just had a huge song for Clay Cross called I Surrender All. So even though Reggie was a huge friend of mine, I'm sitting there the whole time questioning my wisdom and throwing out an idea based on an old hymn because Reggie just had this hit with this old hymn title. And we sat there for the longest time trying to come up with other ideas. And finally I said, okay, you're probably not going to want to write this because you wrote I Surrender All, which is a hymn title, and this is a hymn title. But what if we wrote a song that said, sometimes we don't see eye to eye. We don't agree. We don't know why, but Jesus prayed that we'd be one. I don't think I had the last line or something like that. And, but, but then I said, but then the chorus would say, shall we gather at the river of forgiveness? And I'll never forget, Reggie raised up one finger and goes, dude. And he walks over to the piano and he starts playing this little riff, which is the intro you hear on the record. Wow. And we wrote Gather at the River, went and played it for Cindy Wilt, who was my publisher, and one of the few times that Cindy was not right... <laughs> She said, she said, look, you both have songs on hold for Point of Grace. They're picking final songs this weekend. If you're going to go into a Point of Grace meeting at the last minute, it needs to be a sure thing, and this is not a sure thing. Wow. 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 And she said, just be content that you've both got songs on that record. And we left and stayed up all night doing a demo. Um Drove to the Nashville airport to meet John Mays because he was flying out to Estes Park to pick songs right. with the girls that weekend. Right. Handed it off to John Mays, and the other songs we both had on hold didn't make the final cut, but Gather at the River did. Wow. And ended up being, at least at least financially for me, yeah. the biggest song of my it was career. the first single. It yeah. Was just, and it I was, remember it, it coming was out. huge. Yeah, it was huge. huge. But I always, talk, I always think about, as much as Cindy was right about so much, you have to yeah. trust your instinct, yeah. even yeah. with people yes. you love and, and respect and know. Yes. I mean, that was my biggest song, and if I had listened to yeah. that, but for, I and she it, was happy to be wrong. She was yeah. not offended that, sure. that we did that. And, and so last week, if I remember right, you were invited to sing that song. Tell us about that. It's their 30th anniversary, and so <laughs> as Point of Grace, so they came and and ask me to to come and sing for their fans and share some of the stories. And I got to share stories that they had never heard. That's awesome. And it was that. so That's of course, and you know them. They're just yes. oh. they are yeah. they are everything you see on I stage. Totally That's agree. exactly who they are in person. Yeah. I and agree. it was just so it was so wonderful. 
And it was so wonderful for me, anyway. Yeah. I, I hope it was great for everybody else, but it was yeah, just such I a soul-moving experience Any, for me. Anytime you can hear a writer do a song, especially oh. one that's lived 30, 40 years. Yes, yes. That, that's, that there t- just aren't that many of them. There, there's a, a few more things I'd, I'd love to get into if you're open to it. And sure. W- one, again, I, I remember things uh, probably longer than I should, <laughs> but... I remember some point you were talking to me about one of your biggest influences as a writer of, of somebody that you admired, and that was a, a, a lady named Dottie. Mm. And um, that that was kind of a, a high standard for you. Did you ever get to know Dottie Rambo? <laughs> you know, I love this story. This is know, my favorite story. Oh, I don't know if you're. I don't know what, which one uh, you're thinking of. But here, but here's the truth. I learned to write because I had a little yellow plastic turntable in my music room. And back then, the lyrics were printed on the inside jackets for vinyl. Right. And I would not, I couldn't listen to a record unless I've got the, the liner notes. And I'm, I'm looking to see the lyric and, and how it's printed on the page. And I'm looking to see who the writers are and who. And I would listen and read at the same sure. time. That's how I listen to music. Yeah. And, and I just as a side note, I hate that that's gone away. Yeah. But, but, so then I moved to town, and and Dottie was just, I mean, I remember, and this may be the story you're thinking of. I remember listening to a song that Dottie wrote called "How Graciously Grace Has Covered, covered my, my Sin." My favorite, one of my favorite Dottie Rambo songs. And I was just blown away <laughs> with the craft of just the the title. Oh, yeah. And that was the first time I remember consciously going, I want to do that. Oh, wow. I want to do that. And, and that was just a huge thing for me. But then later, I had several opportunities to meet Dottie, and I didn't. That's what I love. Because I, I was told scared that. Yeah, yeah. to meet one of my heroes. Yeah, sure. yeah. Because I'd met some of my other and, heroes, yeah, and that didn't go so well. Yeah, yeah. And I remember one time I was at an ASCAP dinner. So this is further on in my career, right. and I still had never met Dottie. And I'm waiting. It was at some country club. I, I, it was they were honoring her. No, this was before that. Okay, the, with the plus that. one, the Cindy Morgan. Yeah, this is before okay, that. Okay, all right. And so, I'm. I'd been given an ASCAP award that night. It was at Richland Country Club. Yeah, it was. And I'm. I'm waiting at the valet stand for my car. And Buck and Dottie are standing right behind me, <laughs> waiting for their car. <laughs> And I wanted so bad to turn around and talk, but again, I just ah, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And then much later, Dusty introduced me to her at at Sunset Grill for yeah, some event I, there. I forgot all about that. I and, did. You're right. Yeah. And wow. she was lovely, and couldn't have been lovelier, and couldn't wow. have been more yeah. supportive. She, yeah. And 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 there had been another side thing that happened in a prayer meeting where she kind of called me out and prayed for me and wow. and I wasn't I didn't even consider myself a songwriter yet and she put her hands on both sides of my face and said your songs will go around the world and and I think about that was every that time was that a Steve Hurst thing was that or what it was that at the National Quartet Commission National Quartet yep and and I think about that every time I get a foreign royalty check when when Dottie put her hands on both sides of my face and around said the world. your songs will go around the world yeah you know. Somebody did that to me one time and said, the Lord told them I would be singing in stadiums. 
And I, you know, you never want to doubt somebody's, but I'd heard me sing. I kind of felt pretty sure that wasn't going to happen. It was about six months later. I was leading a choir at a church here in town, and we were doing the national anthem at the Sound Stadium in Nashville. And we're we're out there. I'm on the pitcher's mound leading the choir, and I thought, huh, this is it. This is it. That's so funny. Oh yeah. But but I still I still go back when I'm writing. I still go back to what would Dottie do, you know? And and she was a stickler for structure. Yes. You know, she was a stickler for that, and. That's a phrase you don't hear very often anymore. Oh, you don't. You don't. But you also don't hear songs that last yeah. decades. Bingo. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'll, yeah. Ushers come. I'll take an offering on that yeah. one. No, that's the truth. Yeah. yeah. The, the song that uh, – and we, we touched on a little bit earlier. We'll end this whenever you're ready. But okay. I, I, we'll use some of this now, some later. And okay. I, I just love the stories. And, <laughs> and that's exactly what – what the purpose of this is, but the song that um, we talked earlier about how close you're willing to go to what you've been through. And, and, and I think, I don't know a lot about your story except what you shared about how you grew up and stuff. But I remember one of those songs that you, t- Dusty, you've talked about it. I remember where I was when I heard it, it was orphans of God. Mm. And, um, That was that was written. That was written from a sermon, inspired um, by a sermon, and a pastor of a church brought in brought in sheets of paper with charities written on it, and he he talked about how the church should be outside the church, and how you know we should be the first ones to answer the call. We should not be the ones criticizing other people who are out there doing things that the church should be doing. We should be binding the wounds. We should be feeding the hungry. We should be, you know, clothing the poor. We should be the ones doing those things and not sitting in our lofty piety criticizing the ones who are. And and I I still have the bulletin. I wrote down there are no orphans of God on the bulletin, and I thought he said it. And Love so it. after the service, I went and got the CD of the sermon and because I wanted to save it because I was just so moved by that thought that there are no orphans of God. And I listened to it, and it wasn't there. Right. Well, we had two services, so I thought, oh, it must have been the CD from the other service. So I went and got the CD from the other service, and it wasn't there either. And I emailed the pastor and said, did you say this? And he said, no, I didn't, but I believe that. And the next day, I had a writing session scheduled with Twyla Labar, not knowing that she was adopted, not knowing that she had this whole literal, in, in, in so many ways, she was a literal orphan. And, and there, that song has been such a blessing because there have been so many scenarios of Absolutely. orphanhood, yeah. yes. if that's a word, yes. that people have related to that song and... And it and it's, it just keeps having a life. I'm blown away. The song is I don't know 15 years old yeah. now, yeah. and there it's finding new life in different genres and by Which, people that I would never dream would the sing the song. But again, that's the sign of a well crafted yes. song. But there's a tendency sometimes to think, will it work for this record or will it work for this weekend at church? And and back when writers like you were starting out. 
it was, will this work 50 years from now, whether I'm around to hear it or not? It's always so interesting to me when you talk to a songwriter like Dave, you, or Joel, because I do feel like, and I've said this to both of you, you guys have that heart of Oda Dottie Rambo. I think both of you write that way. You have that heart because Dottie, now the thing that's different about you both Dottie, could, you could not tell Dottie, Dottie, I need you to write a song about the blood of Jesus. Yeah. And I, don't, I think that's some of her past. That was some of her upbringing, leaving home at 12. She couldn't do that, and she couldn't co-write. If you yeah. look at her catalog, right. it's very, very, few. very yeah. few. And usually it was Phil Johnson would maybe do some music or Donnie would do music. But when it comes to lyrics, very, very few could. She, she just couldn't do right. that. Yeah. And but anyway, going back to your song, I think about or, the different songs, and I hope this is okay if I inter- say this here, uh, Joel. You've had some health issues, a lot, yeah. And I want to know because I do think you're. I love when I've been to your retreats, even when you've had the health issues. I'll listen to you with some of the other writers and the songs that you're writing, and I always think he's writing that for him. He's writing that for him. What songs? come back to you right now you know i wrote a song for the perry's called calvary answers for me it's a great song and and that song was written during three months of cancer treatments and even though when you're going through something heavy like that even though you know in your heart god is not a punisher no god does not hold your past against you god does not I could not shake that I'm going through cancer because of this, yes. this, and this. Yep. Oh, yeah. And and I knew that, and I just kept, couldn't shake it. And that song came one line at a time. I mean, it was a slow unfold. I could not have co-written that song. It had to unfold over a a period of time. And I still remember exactly the moment when I wrote the lines, when I'm called to answer for my history, Calvary answers, Calvary answers for me. And, and I remember I was laying in my bed, and I was sick as a dog, and I was just in so much pain, but also experiencing a lot of depression and a lot of, of, of emotional sickness too, which go hand in hand with those kind of situations. And and I remember writing that line, and there was something about the writing down of that line that was very healing for me. And there was another line in the song, when Satan, when Satan reminds me of things I regret, I bring up Calvary lest he forget. You know, and that was healing for me. And that was, and I didn't know if anybody else would relate to that song. Yeah. I was not writing that song for anybody but me. Yeah, it was written for me. And, and, you know, I remember playing it for one of my best friends, Belinda Smith, and I said, can I just play you something? I don't know if it's any good or not, but it, it, I just, it's just, and maybe it's a song for me, and I thought it was. And I played it for, and, and when I was in her living room, I played it for, and she just kind of leaned over and patted my arm, and she said, that's not just for you. That's going to be for a lot of people, well, you know. But the, but the great part of where you are in your journey is uh, it was for you. It was for me. It just didn't have to end with that audience. Right. And that's what made it, I think, so, maybe so powerful because I wasn't writing for anybody else. But, you know, 
I I needed to write it. You you needed to write it. You so you you know what to do with that as a writer, but you also learn to listen like a writer. And right. So I hear a lot of writers will say, "Yeah, I wrote it down," and then I found out they didn't. That's not what they said. Well, it's because you're listening like a writer, <laughs> and it can be somewhere close, and you've already yeah. zoned out and started. Yeah. There's a a cemetery a few miles from here where where my dad is is buried in, and. As a kid, I grew up learning to play guitar to Johnny Cash songs. You know, that yeah, was that was sure. who I listened to. And, and the irony is that if you walk 75 steps from where my dad is buried, you'll find Johnny Cash's grave. Wow, wow, wow. So sometimes I go and I just, you know, I go there. I don't know why I go, but I, I need to go there. And everybody says don't. And so a month or so ago, I, I, I left the cemetery by, a, I just circled around it. And there's a bench with the grave of a friend of mine's dad who was a country songwriter. And on that bench or that sign is one of his lyrics. And it says it was a George Jones hit. And it just has the chorus, who's going to fill their shoes? Uh, yeah, man. Yeah. Mm. And I'm always curious. So if that's my stone and I had to choose from 50 years of songs, What's the one lyric that I want carved on my bench? You ever Ooh. think about that? And if wow. if so, what wow. would it be? Um, that answer would change daily, but I think probably overall it would be: there are no orphans of God, mm. there are no strangers, there are no outcasts, there are no orphans of God. So many fallen, but hallelujah, there are no orphans of God. That would be, that would be the one I think. Wow. This has been awesome. It is. I know people are going to listen to this and be touched by it uh, because it's all, it's all about the story and it's all about the song. It all begins with yeah, it. Mm, he did. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't begin with the song. It doesn't all begin with the song. It begins with a songwriter. Man, that's yeah. powerful. A songwriter who's walked through life. Right. And they're not and afraid to be real. It. And yeah. they're not afraid to be real and they're not afraid to be vulnerable. Uh, and, and as somebody said, they, they open a vein and bleed on the page. We're glad you were here for this episode of I Love to Tell the Story. Be sure and tune in next time for more with Dusty Wells and Dave Clark. It'll just keep getting better and better. Wait and see. See you next time.